been looking forward to this series for quite a while now. I've had it in the pipeline uh, for a couple of months. 16 weeks, we're going to focus on the life of Peter the Apostle. But first of all, we're going to meet Peter the Disciple. And before that, we're going to meet Peter the Fisherman. So in, in this series, we've got 16 weeks. We've divided it into two lots of eight. So we're going to be looking at Peter the Disciple. And so therefore, we've called the series Follow because the disciple is going to learn how to follow Jesus. And so we're going to learn through him what it means to follow Jesus. And then from the book of Acts onwards, of course, Peter takes a lead, and we've really complicated things. We're going to call that series Lead. Okay, so don't want anybody missing out here. And so what we're going to do is focus on how he has become a leader in the life of the church and a leader with a mission to fulfill the call of God on his life. So I'm really excited about it. Um, because what we're going to do is we're going to discover not only what Peter did, but we're going to discover what he said. We're going to discover how he felt. We're going to discover how he thought. And all of these things are just going to add a richness to us about our own journey of faith. Because when we look at Peter, we see, well, I do anyway, I see somebody who's um, complicated but not complicated. And that sounds like all of us, really. We're all complicated, but we're not complicated. We're, you know, we're pretty standard models, but as standard models, we get it wrong and we get it right. We say the right thing, we say the wrong thing, we do the right thing and we do the wrong thing. So Jesus is grooming Peter to be a great leader, a leader who has shaped world history. And yet he comes from such humble beginnings that uh, any other time in history, he would have been overlooked and just been an also ran. Okay, but with the power of God on his life, with him inviting Christ into his life, accepting the challenge to be a disciple first, he changed the world. And that's encouragement for all of us, isn't it? I think so. So we're going to jump straight into it. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have a look at the beginning of the beginning, as in the call of God upon Peter's life and how that came about. I think there's a bit of confusion out there about how it is that Paul, sorry, Paul Peter was called. Uh, Peter was essentially doing his thing as a fisherman, but all of this was in a context. And then Jesus came along. I want to explain the context to you so that you can get a better understanding of how God interacts in your life as much as he interacted in Peter's life. Okay, so the first thing I want to do is bring out Matthew's gospel. Matthew has a very, very simple summary of how Peter was called. Let's have a look at it. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter. This is an important beginning. Simon and Peter are interchangeable at this time. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Pretty simple, eh? Now, I had this picture in our living room for many, many years uh, when I was first a Christian, not long after, or about the time I got married. And, and this said a lot to me about this call because it, would, it was capturing this, this scene that Matthew's described where these guys were there in their boats and we assume that Peter is the guy standing up. He's sort of the, the biggest chap there and looks pretty engaged with what Jesus was saying. And um, so this is a picture, and you can read into it what happens next, can't you? If you take Matthew's gospel and his description of what happens next, it's like they hear the call from Jesus, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
So the picture comes alive in my imagination like this. It's like, Following Jesus. Something like out of a zombie apocalypse sort of type movie. Not that I've ever watched those, but I've seen the trailers, that's enough. <clears throat> so what we've got here is, is, a, is a picture of robotic blind obedience. Okay? Matthew's gospel records for us that they heard the call, come and be fishers of men. They left their nets and they followed Jesus. Which sounds fantastic in a weird sort of way in a weird sort of way. Because there seems to be a surrendering of mind, surrendering of will. And uh, here's a guy who we've never met. He wanders up and he goes, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Okay. You know, and what did, what did dad think? You know, they just abandoned the family fishing business. You know, what did mum think? You know, there's no, no, no more income coming in. And so you've got this real challenge going on here when you read this. So it's very important for us to then take another look at this story and another look at this story because the gospel writers record their view of what happened to Peter and his friends in these early days when they were discovering who Jesus was and discovering that he was interested in their lives. So um, Matthew's gospel records this. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their, fa left the boat and their father and followed him. So that's what we've, we've just seen, okay? So here is now John's gospel recording the same event, but in different ways. Okay, so, but there's a little, little trick to understanding this, okay? The next day, John, this is not John the writer, this is John the Baptist, okay? So John the Baptist is what we're talking about here. The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied and you will see. So they went and saw where it was he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So here we have a scenario where you got these spiritually curious people, these brothers, and they're hanging out with the latest thing that's happening. That latest thing that's happening is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is down the Jordan baptizing everybody on the confession of their sins, a baptism of repentance. And then Jesus turns up, who happens to be John's cousin. And as he walks by, John the Baptist goes, look, there's the Lamb of God. It's like, oh, hello. Now that term is code. Okay? It doesn't mean, hello, there's a nice fuzzy little white guy. Okay? It doesn't mean the Lamb of God in that sense. Code for the Messiah. Okay? So all of a sudden, these guys who were John the Baptist's best friends, they're like, we're following him. So they literally follow him to his home. They spend time with him. And then Andrew goes back and tells his brother, Simon Peter, 
whom he's just been hanging out with. So, so this is the first time in John's gospel that we see Peter interacting with anything of this Christian story. And as much as it's his brother who is telling Simon Peter that there's a guy whom we should get to know. John the Baptist, who we all know, reckons that he's the Lamb of God, the Messiah who was to come. Okay, so, so what's happening here is his mind is being informed by other people whom he trusts. So let's have a look now at um, Luke's gospel, because Luke records a similar event, but from a completely different context. But it, again, it enhances our understanding of how Peter got to the point where he would accept the call that, Peter, that, that Jesus was putting on his life. And this is really, really important for us. So here we are in Luke's gospel, and something happens before Peter gets called, and it goes like this. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, this is Simon Peter, right? Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Perfect mother-in-law, okay? So, so what's happening is Jesus has come into Peter's home, Simon Peter's home. She's sick and a miracle happens. So what's happening? Peter's getting informed here that not only is this guy the Messiah, because John the Baptist said he might be, but look, he performs miracles, all right? So there's a growing understanding now that this guy, Jesus, is somebody pretty special, all right, which is in many ways probably a, a journey that a lot of us have gone on. You know, I don't know many people who have drop their nets and follow Jesus, you know? It's sort of a picture of the uninformed. But Luke carries on with this and he takes this, this understanding, he grows it a little bit further. So next chapter in Luke's gospel, we're told this. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the lake of Sea of Galilee, it's the same place. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats, uh, two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Great little picture, isn't it? Little simple crowd control trick going on here. Okay, just push out just enough. No speakers, no lights, nothing, just good booming voice, and he teaches the crowd. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled, up their, boats, pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. So they've had this encounter with, with, with Jesus. 
And yet this encounter is all in a context, isn't it? It's in a context because we're finding here that it wasn't just simply an act of obedience, come follow me, yes I will. It was a growing level of understanding. You know, he was introduced to the idea of Jesus by Andrew. Then he was introduced to the miraculous by the fact that he did a, a miracle on his mother-in-law. And then he says, sees Jesus doing a miracle within the context of his life, within his workplace. And I think that's the one that got him because Peter knows that you don't go fishing during the daytime, you fish at night because he'd been out all night. Okay? He also knew there was no fish around. And yet Jesus says, just go out into the deep water. He throws the net over, fills the boat, two boats full of fish to the point where they're sinking. All of a sudden, everything lines up for Peter. All of a sudden, this all makes sense, doesn't it? He's been told by John the Baptist that this is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. And he's like, whoa. And so without any invitation to do so, Peter simply humbles himself in the manner that the Old Testament prophets have humbled themselves in the presence of God. You know, when Isaiah there in the temple in the Old Testament you know, has a revelation of God, he says, woe to me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. This is the revelation of God. When it comes upon you, you realize just who you are not by diminishing yourself, but by elevating your understanding through revelation of who God is. And when Jesus is there doing your work for you, you got no fish, he's just filled the boat twice, breaking your nets, you go, your God, I'm not. Your God, I'm not. And so, so what's happening with Peter? Well, he's now on a journey. He has had an encounter with God. He's had a revelation of God. He's had a conversion experience. You'd say he's being born again or being born again. Right? All of these bits of language that we use to describe that, that event when somebody has something happen in their life that is divine and God calls you to do something completely different. And that's what's happening to Peter. But all of this has to happen in a context. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, and what I mean by this, context when we look at scripture is so vitally important. Otherwise, we miss the power of what is actually happening here. And we just think these guys are puppets or muppets just doing something, basically because one guy waltzed into their lives and said, you can do better than this, follow me. Okay, so until we've got a context, we don't understand fully what's going on here. Let me describe what I mean by context. Um, when I was a school kid, um, I was in the first 15 and we went on a tour to Australia. Now, when we went, we did this tour of the uh, half a dozen schools along the East Coast, and um, we wanted to do something cultural, so we all know what a haka is here in New Zealand. You know, New Zealanders like haka, we do haka, we know what it means, and we know the significance of it. And so, as a team, we practiced our haka. First game, uh, it was in the middle of the heart, right in the heart of Sydney, some really posh school where they pay way too much money to be educated. We had to give them an education on how to play rugby. But before, before that, um, we go on the paddock, we stand back 10 metres from the line, halfway line, and we do the haka. All right? I was on the reserve bench, so I go off and I stand next to a woman who comes up to me and she goes, what did you just do? And we said, I said, oh, it's called the haka. She goes, wow, 
rugby's really serious, eh? I said, yep. She goes, so did you do that just to have a bit of a laugh before the game got too serious? I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, it was really funny what you did. I was like, I was still trembling with adrenaline, you know, I was so pumped up about it. I'm like, you have no idea what we just did because why? Because you had no context, yeah? So it makes sense, context is important. Another, another situation with regard to context goes like this. Uh, some folks who were in the first service, Graham and Lynn Nichols, some years ago, picked up a couple of women hitchhikers and they brought them to church here on a Sunday morning, a couple of Dutch girls. And they had to leave just right on the end of the service to go to Auckland to catch a plane to fly out. Anyway, Graham and Lynn were in Holland later on that year, so they looked them up and they had lunch together. Well, Lynn had this burning question, you know, what did you think of church? You came to church, you'd never been to church before, what did you think of church? And both girls said, we thought it was amazing. And Lynn's like, cool, yeah? Yeah, we thought it was amazing. Hundreds of people doing karaoke together. <laughs> well, when Lynn and Graham told me this, it was like a revelation to me. Of course, that's what we do, isn't it? Now, we all think that it's hymns, hymn books, we get rid of those, and we had overhead transparencies, had that, and then we've moved to projectors, you know? We know the journey of where we've come from. Someone who's walked in, no cultural context, go church, those people do karaoke together. It's cool, yeah? Crazy, isn't it? See, cultural context makes a difference. So what I want to explain to you now is the cultural context with which, within which Peter was called, okay? The whole Jewish life, the whole Jewish system was built around gleaning out the brightest of the students who were born amongst them. And they could come from anywhere. So what that means is that they had this very egalitarian social system with respect to education. Everybody got a chance to go and learn scripture under the scripture teachers. And so for the first six or seven years of a child's life from the age four or five, when they started through to about the age 12, the kids would learn scripture and they would learn the first five books of scripture off by heart, okay? You just go and grab those first five books, look at them yourself. You just, just think of the book of Numbers. You know, if you ever look through the book of Numbers, unbelievable way. By the age of 12, they would know the, the, the scriptures off by heart. They would know how to discuss them, know how to argue them. They'd look for the, the, the challenges within them, the contradictions within them. This is all part of the education. All right, about the age of 12, the top students would be gleaned off, okay? And they would be, go off to a, a rabbinic school, not necessarily a rabbinic school, but leading up to a rabbinic school, like a high school. They would then become familiar with the rest of the books of scripture to the same degree, largely, that they would know them off by heart. Amazing, eh? Just amazing. And, and we struggle remembering passwords for our computers. But So those who have been overlooked they go back to their families and they pick up the trade that their family had. You know, it might be working in agriculture, it might be working uh, you know, with fishing or carpentry or tent making, that sort of thing. There's no shame in that because the whole society was just looking for the best of the best to be involved in the spiritual well-being of their, of their culture, of their society. Around about the age of 18 or 19, there was a level of independence that was required of these students. And so what they would do is they would then 
approach a rabbi, the students would approach a rabbi, and they would ask if they could sit under their teaching. All right? And so there was a, a conversation that occurred, a dialogue that occurred at this point. And if that rabbi felt that this young student was going to be capable of representing him and his teaching, then he would say these words to that student. He would say, come follow me. That was code word for come to my university. Come follow me. Come sign up. Not only come and learn what I know, but be who I am. And there's a huge difference between know what I know and be who I am. You see, the whole of Scripture, when it comes to being a disciple, was about an embodiment of Scripture, an embodiment of knowledge. So it wasn't okay just to do the test and get 100%. You had to be able to dress the same way, speak the same way, eat food the same way, socialize the same way, have the same opinions, the same answers, to the point where you represented a school of thought. Now, in Jesus' day, there were two main schools of thought, okay, uh, from the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Now, you, you can Google these guys, okay? Their material is, is there to see. And one was a little bit more liberal and one was a little bit more conservative than the other. So Shammai would be the guy who would say, hey, we can't share the good news of God with anybody outside of the nation of Israel because we are God's people we hold on to the truth, and the truth is ours. God wants us and us only. Whereas Hillel would say, oh, hold on, you know, God's for all people. You know, Remember the call of Abraham? Blessing to all nations? Mm, okay. And so these are the debates that these two different classes or houses would have. And so these were raging conversation topics. One had a different view on divorce, one was more liberal, one was more conservative, uh, way that you ate your food or didn't eat your food, everything, everything about life was recorded and talked about and owned by the society. So that's put in context for us what Jesus was about when he turns up, because he comes as a rabbi. And the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably his most famous sermon, if you go through Matthew chapter 5 and 6, you'll find that the different topic matters that Jesus addresses when he talks about um, murder, he talks about adultery, he talks about divorce, divorce, he talks about taking oaths. He begins each of those subject matter with these words. You have heard it said. You have heard it said. It has been said. Again, you have heard that it is said. What Jesus is referring to here is the conversations that come from the house of Hillel and Shammai. He's referring to these teachers. Um, in other places, you'll find Jesus saying, it is written. What he's doing there is he's referring to the Old Testament. But here Jesus is taking on the conversation of the day. He is engaged with what people are thinking. He's engaged with what people are, th are saying. He's engaged with the way they're living their lives. And so here is Jesus talking to the crowds about the conversations that they're having over their dinner tables and in their synagogues. When he says, you have heard it said that you shall not murder, but let me tell you this, if you look at a man with anger, you have murdered him in your heart. Whew. Whoa, that's a new teaching. Wow. You have heard it said that if you commit adultery, 
you're in trouble. But let me tell you, if you look at a woman in lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Now we're in trouble. You see, Jesus took the, the, the thinking of the day and he turned it into a, a different, different conversation which allowed for the orientation of the kingdom to bear upon these people in such a way that he created a whole new way of thinking to the point where people could say, the kingdom of God is amongst us. Because it was no longer about the head, but it was about the heart. It wasn't about the actions, it was about the intent. And that's what we know about Jesus, eh? Jesus is never satisfied with our actions. He wants our hearts to be involved with it as well. And so when it comes to the call of God upon our lives, which Peter is now experiencing, Jesus wants the whole person. He just doesn't want the actions. He wants the whole person engaged. And so when Peter sees that this man, Jesus, comes into his workplace, totally, totally blows his mind by performing a miracle, the only response that Peter can bring is to kneel before him and say, God, I am, I'm just not worthy. And Peter shifts the conversation. You're a fisherman, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Okay, I have plans for you. All right? Which is always scary, isn't it? I know when, when I first became a Christian, you know, I felt that I was making an informed decision. But I still had this idea that when I surrendered my life to God, God would probably make me a missionary in outer Siberia somewhere. You know, oh, the Mongolians, they need Jesus, you know. And yet, God wants all of us. He wants every part of us. And so the question that, um, that we have in front of us is, is now, why did Jesus choose fishermen? Carpenters work hard, they're good people. People who grow things, farmers, they're good people, but fishermen. Let me, let me go through this list. Let me go through this list. These are um, some thoughts anyway. Firstly, fishermen are hardworking, aren't they? Now, you can't lift a net out of the water without working hard. You've got to row, you've got to get up early in the morning to get out there, you're often working at night, and so they're hardworking. To be a fisherman... A little bit like a dairy farmer in some sense in New Zealand, isn't he? Get up four in the morning, milk those cows. They don't go away. They're there every day. All right. The other thing about hard work is it also is teamwork. So if Jesus is looking for a disciple, he's saying, I don't want someone who just works hard. I want somebody who works with others. So teamwork's really important. And with teamwork, there's somebody who's open to take instructions, not so fat-headed or heavy, uh, sorry, fat-headed or um, self-centered that you won't listen to other people. All right, because you need to be able to take instructions. I want people to be courageous. Fishermen are courageous because they're offshore. They're at the mercy of the elements. They never know fully, especially in those days, what the weather was going to bring. We get onto our, our Google weather app and we go, oh, I'm not going fishing this afternoon because there's a storm coming in. Well, you never knew what you're in for. So they're courageous. Uh, the other thing about fishermen, even today, they are spiritually aware. Now, sometimes it might be superstition, but you will never meet a fisherman who says God doesn't exist because they are vulnerable to the vagaries of the elements. Um, back in the 80s, Michaela and I, my wife and I, lived over in the UK, and um, we spent a summer working down in Cornwall in a little wee fishing village called Loo, L-O-O-E. Beautiful place. 
And um, I got told one day that uh, the fishermen are very superstitious. And I said, oh, that makes sense. And they said, let me tell you a story. And so I was listening to this story, and the guy says, I've got to speak in hushed tones. We're, we're in a pub at the time. And you, okay. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, don't ever mention, it's going to sound strange, don't ever mention a white rabbit. I'm like, why? I thought he's having me on. Apparently, there'd been a real disaster at sea one time, and on the way to the boats early in the morning, one of the fishermen had seen a white rabbit in the field before he went in. And he talked to people about the white rabbit. <laughs> Sounds strange, eh? And then there was a tragedy. So this has built a superstition, you see. So what happens is, the guy told me, he says, if they see a white rabbit, they won't go fishing that day. And if anybody mentions a white rabbit, they don't go fishing that day. So that's why I had to speak in hushed tones. Because if I said, white rabbit, all the fishermen wouldn't have gone working that day. So I only say that because it's true and it's crazy. And that's what superstition looks like. Okay, But what I want to say in this context is that Jesus is looking for people who are spiritually aware, conscious of their need to lean on God, conscious of their need to lean on God and one another. So here we have Peter saying yes to Jesus. And I think it's easy to say yes to Jesus, but not fully understanding his agenda for you. When you're saying yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to his lordship, and you're saying yes to the will of God with respect to your whole life. Is that true? This isn't just yes to Jesus, and I'm grateful, God, that I've got an insurance policy that gets me into heaven. That's called Jesus the Saviour, hopefully, but the Lord, no thanks. Okay? If he's Lord and Saviour, he has to operate him. If he's Lord, he, sorry, if he's Saviour, he has to operate as Lord as well. And uh, I've, I've got this, I've spent a lot of money, and I've got this great illustration for you today. It's a soup spoon. Now, if you turn the tap on, and you put your soup spoon under it like that, the water pours over, all right? That's a little bit like people who say, oh, I just want Jesus to be saviour. But what happens when you flip the spoon up that way? We've all done it, haven't we? That little trickle of water becomes a shower all over you, doesn't it? I would hazard a guess that there's not one person in the room who hasn't had a shower courtesy of a spoon that's been sitting in the sink, yeah? But the choice is really that simple. You see, when Peter is being called, I suspect he was quite comfortable with the idea of hanging out with Jesus. A few more miracles, sort out the mother-in-law, that'd be great. But he had a revelation when those fish were caught and something flipped in his life and he realized that it was gonna be more than just following. It was going to become a fisher of men, and what was going on in his life was going to spill over and affect others. And I think, um, I think Christians today around the world are in that same camp. If anybody doesn't understand this illustration, by the way, I'll pray for you afterwards, okay? <laughs> I just can't get more simple than this. But when you're called... This is what counts. It's taking your life. We, we sung songs this morning, didn't we, about God's love being poured into us. 
This is what counts, is the ability for what, goes, what comes from God to hit us and to go out. And we're going to see that in the, uh, in the weeks ahead. So saying yes to Jesus is about moving out of the, the shallow water into the deep water. And um, I've got to say, um, over the years, I've, I've met a lot of folks. I'm thinking of a guy that um, I knew when I was first a Christian. And um, call him, I'll call him Bill. Um, Bill went off to Borneo and was working with the tribes up there and was just totally blown away by the power of God moving amongst the tribes. And he came back after a couple of months and he said, I'm committing my life to these young, to the, to these, these young, young-ish nations, I suppose. And, I, and he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get into real estate, buy some houses for myself, get a rental income going, and I'm going back. Well, 35 years later, he owns lots of houses and never been back again. Yeah, it's really easy, isn't it, to get caught in the trap. And um, I would suggest, though, that it's never too late. You know, you can, you can never stop and say, oh, I missed my boat. I missed the boat as in I missed the opportunity to get in my boat and throw my nets out in deeper water. It's never too late. Um, I, I, I totally ruined some people's day. Well, I hope I did. Um, about six weeks ago, I was in the supermarket and I was chatting to these folks who, who I knew years ago when they used to come to the hall when we were there, uh, when we were in the hall days. And um, I hadn't seen them for a long time. And, and I said, oh, what are you up to? And they said, oh, well, our kids have all gone, left home. And um, we're probably a bit of a loose end, really. You know, not quite sure what to do with ourselves. You know, we wish, wish God would tell us what to do. And I said, you guys used to be YWAMers, didn't you? You involved with YWAM schools? Yeah, yeah, we did a couple of, you know, we did a DTS and a few things like that. And I said, you know what? You guys would be fantastic as YWAM camp mums and dads. Why don't you just put the word out, make yourself available to go there, cook, do the dishes, and pray for the students that cook and do the dishes. And because um, once a YWAMer, always a YWAMer, you're allowed in, okay, go back. And, uh, and you can take all of this lifetime of experience raising a family, doing missions, all the things that they've done, and you can pour that into somebody else's life. And they're like, oh, I suppose we could. And so I left two very dejected people walking down the cooking aisle of the supermarket. That's all that was going on. Here's your life. What do you want it to be like that? We, um, we don't need excuses to follow Jesus. But we're always called back to that first love for him. And we're discovering in Peter's life in these weeks ahead what that first love meant what it triggered for him, what it set in motion. And this call, this marked day upon, Jesus, upon Peter's life, set his life in motion 
It set the course of his life. It set the determination in his heart. And all of these things came together over periods of years as God continued to to work in him. You see, God calls you. He doesn't abandon you halfway through. He will continue to call you into stage after stage after stage until you become a really old guy like Peter, lose your life, and you get a basilica named after you in Rome. Well, that might not happen. But he doesn't abandon you. And so over the next seven weeks, and then eight weeks following, we're going to discover not only Peter, we're going to discover ourselves in the midst of this journey. We're going to see ourselves in the mirror of Peter's life. And I expect you to be challenged. Because that's what scripture does. And maybe this is a symbol for us of the, of the whole journey that we've got ahead of us. Eh? Let's stand for prayer. God, we thank you for stories that record for us other people's lives that you have taken and used. People with normal lives like Peter. It reminds us that nothing is too hard for you. And you're just looking for people who are open. And so God, I pray that this morning we begin something of a new journey of excitement, a new journey that finds expression in each of our lives as we are recalled, recaptured, reinvented and reminded of your goodness to your servant Peter and ultimately through to each one of us. Father, I pray that in these weeks ahead that uh, with a variety of voices that we have amongst us for this series, that you would just touch people's lives and bring them to a revelation of what it is to follow, what we need to do to follow Jesus. But it all begins with your love. Your love at the cross, your love and the resurrection, your love and the pouring out of your spirit upon your people, and your love in calling each one of us. So Lord, may we be open wherever we're at, whatever stage of life we're in, wherever our hearts might be, and that we would find ourselves, Lord, once again, impressed and encouraged and strengthened by those who have gone before us. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. 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 Thanks, team.